0: like to invite everyone to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're continuing and, and yet coming to a close to our journey in, in Hebrews. We have one more after this week, but today we come to Hebrews chapter 13. It's the last chapter in Hebrews. and We'll be in Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 19. Now, I, I'm going to start off today um, talking about dog training, and if you are a dog trainer, uh, please don't judge me too harshly. I've, but I've tried my hand at, at dog training, and it's, I find it to be very difficult, probably because I'm doing it wrong. Uh, but one thing I've learned about dogs is they love limitations, all right? They need limitations. Everybody knows the dog that doesn't have limitations. That dog barks. It bites, it jumps, it's just not a pleasant dog to be around. It, even though dogs are the best, right? We all agree on that. But dog, dog, dogs love when there's an alpha, right? They love when there's structure and there's, there's order. They love being part of a pack. They, they thrive best knowing when there are borders. And, and the more that a dog has less structure, less borders, the, the less healthy it is for them. With the exception of Dobby, this is like the house elves from the book that shall not be named. They love borders. If you know, you know. Okay? Don't worry about it. Uh, James Clear, a guy wrote a book called Atomic Habits. He writes about a man who uses a wheelchair, and, uh, and someone asked this guy, right, is it, is it difficult using a wheelchair, and this guy responded, I'm not confined to my wheelchair. I'm liberated by it. If it wasn't for my wheelchair, I would be bed-bound and never able to leave my house. We, today, have a particular tendency to see limitation and boundary as negative. And, and, and I say that today, I mean, uh, as Americans we do, but you know, kids just automatically... Rebel against boundaries and limitations. And what do you get when you unite a sin nature bent on autonomy with a cultural message of maximalized individualism? But the truth is, limitation and boundary actually result in maximum human flourishing. We were designed for boundary. And when it comes to worshiping God, this is especially true. We, we don't get to worship God however we want. In Hebrews 12, uh, verse 28, right? He, the author tells us to offer to God acceptable worship. And acceptable worship is, is these limitations, it's these boundaries on what it means to worship God. But instead of confining us, this acceptable worship is meant to free us. It's meant to liberate us. And, and, and if you think about this context, too, these Jewish Christians, they, they don't worship God in the same way anymore. I mean, think about how central to their lives and sacrifices were and, and priests were and, and festivals. But these, these are no longer acceptable. So the author spends some time in chapter 13 here defining What acceptable worship looks like. And he gives us five aspects of acceptable worship. And and, and as we go along, if if you find yourself to have fallen short on on any of these, this is an opportunity for us to to repent that we have failed to offer God acceptable worship. But in, in particular, these five aspects characterize a people who are part of a new kingdom. So let's read Hebrews chapter 13 together, starting in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I'm going to make a very complex exegetical point here, okay? And this is coming at the beginning of the sermon, so you're all still awake, and you can all follow me, right? So, all right, you see that word brotherly love there in verse 1. You see it? The, um, The Greek, actually, behind that word means brotherly love. Right, and in, in fact, it's it's literally the word Philadelphia. Right, we that's where the city name Philadelphia comes from, the city of brotherly love. But uh, this, we're not obviously not supposed to be like Philadelphia. I don't know who wants to be like Philadelphia. Right, this this word is supposed to be this distinct love that Christians have for their siblings. It's a special, it's a unique kind of love. And <clears throat> isn't it something? He, He says in verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And outside of that, acceptable worship is primarily characterized by love for one another. You can come and sing songs and hymns. You can read scripture all you want to, but lacking true Christian love is a sign of defunct worship. And this isn't, this isn't feel-good love. He says, let brotherly love continue, right? Even when it's threatened, even when it's hard, let brotherly love continue. And, and the author, he kind of goes through the next few verses, and, and he lists elements of brotherly love. He, he doesn't really leave us in the dark here. And this list that he goes through is by no means exhaustive, but it is expansive, so first, brotherly love is, can, is extended to the outsider. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And in this culture, in, in Hebrews, and even in many parts of the um, eastern world today, the Near East in particular, um, hospitality is a, a big deal, especially in this day and age, people's homes Functioned as an inn, right? We have our hotels and everything. Uh, they just go to your home. You, you open your, your home to them. You, you feed them. You take care of them. And so this injunction for brotherly love isn't just for those who make us feel comfortable. Love is to be genuinely extended to the uninvited. The otherwise unwelcome, and the uncomfortable. <laughs> and the, the author adds this point to that. He, he says, for thereby some have entertained angels una, unaware. We, we can't dwell too long on, on each of these points, but suffice it to say here that showing loving hospitality is the business of heaven. Second, brotherly love identifies with the shun. He, he says in verse 3, remember those who are in prison, in, in, in prison right? And as Christians, we, we believe in having just societal laws, right? We, there is. It's, it's good to have law and order. But, but the, the author here in verse 3, he, he kind of takes two disparate groups and he, and he pulls them into one. And, and these in particular, the focus of Christian love, Right? You have those in prison, and on the other hand, those who are mistreated. And and so what he's saying is our love should not be constrained to whether someone is guilty of criminal activity or not. The Christian's worldview is more expansive than guilty, not guilty, criminal, not criminal. We are to remember both those in prison and those mistreated. This this isn't giving a pass on evil behavior, but it is a reminder that Christ redeems the chief of sinners and criminals, and that he himself was mistreated, and Christians identify with and empathize with both. As Christians, we're both victim and cause, right? We're both victim and criminal. The worst criminal offense on earth doesn't even come close to our treason against God. And so what God does is he says, you don't have the convenience to choose. The world chooses, you do not. So the outsider, the shunned, the er, brotherly love honors purity. Let, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Listen, this is really simple. A love for God will lead to a love of purity. And this relates to brotherly love for how we think about, act toward, look at our sisters in Christ, our brothers in Christ, Any person who is alluring to us, brotherly love doesn't use them or objectify them, but it honors them. And God will judge you if you do not love purity more than pleasure. Finally, brotherly love withers under greed. He says, keep your life from the love of money. There is an antithesis between... Love of brother and, and love of money. The, the, the two cannot exist together. And, you know, love of money happens in a couple of ways. It, love of accumulation. right? You, you, you love money, so you, you try to earn more so you can spend more. But it, love of money also happens in, with love of frugality. Love of, of penny-pinching. And, and listen... We live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and, and, and it's tempting to read this and say, "Oh, I don't have a love of money." but we live in a culture, and in an age where we worship this. So don't let yourself off the hook so easily. But these things cannot exist with brotherly love. Instead, he says, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Listen, the contrast right between brotherly love and and love of money is, is one of lavish generosity. And lavish generosity is undergirded by a trust in God's particular caring grace of your life. Like, particularly you, particularly your life, particularly your savings and your emergency funds and your retirement accounts, your house. If God doesn't, if we can't trust that God has a particularly caring grace for our lives, we can't be lavish with our generosity. God cares about you. Never will I leave you or forsake you. Um everybody's favorite bumper sticker. Coexists bumper stickers, right? <laughs> you know what the irony the irony of those things is that they usually mean other people need to live the way I want them to without any cost to myself, right? It says, in effect, I want other people to live according to my vision of life without any real change or work on my part. I just say, get along, right, and, I, and, and you guys need to follow my advice and, and I'll do my own thing. In contrast, what this author is getting at is that Christian brotherly love takes all cost on itself. And we do it not according to what we find acceptable. Not according to what we want from others or what others to do for us, but according to what God says is acceptable worship. But there's an there's a other hand to this. It's not enough to say, I love others, right? And it's easy to just say, yes, of course I love others. I love other Christians. Or, or, and it's not even enough to even try to love others. Because brotherly love has a standard, a, a measure against something, and that something is the standard of truth. That's why, second, acceptable worship is characterized by gracious teaching. Gracious teaching. The author writes in verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. He he is going to reference leaders again later in this passage, Uh, but here he seems to be thinking of the leaders who who first spoke the word of God to these these Jewish Christians, right? They they were the first ones to to preach the gospel to them, and and, and it, it kind of seems that these leaders have actually died. That's when he says, uh, "Consider the outcome of their way of life." There, there's kind of like a, like they they're they're gone now. They they're dead. Anyway, there, there's two important aspects of these leaders that he calls their mind to. Right? He's just, he says, "Remember their leaders." And and he calls their mind to two things. One is speaking the word of God, and the other is the outcome of their life. The two are are intertwined. Right. Teaching the Word of God should have a demonstrable result in those who speak it. He says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And and in other words, look at what a difference this has actually made for them. It it actually worked. (laughs) The gospel actually causes us to want to love and to live holy lives. There's a difference. And then he says that that word of God that they spoke to you, right? It doesn't change. He he says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is a remarkable statement on the deity of Christ. Listen, and especially writing to these Jewish Christians, the only one who does not change is Yahweh. He's unchanging. Stephen Wellham wrote, The Scriptures present the incarnation of God the Son with all of the divine attributes without losing any of their perfection. Paul wrote in Colossians, For in Him, in, in Christ the man, in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Infinitely God. Perfectly man. Jesus Christ is unchanging, and so His truth, His Word of God is unchanging. That's why, right, He's not just kind of skipping around here. He continues on the theme of teaching, right? In verse 9, He says, "...don't be led astray." By diverse and strange teachings. These are teachings that, in, in some way, like deform or perhaps muddle or, or contradict the truth that Christ is the Son of God, in all that that means. Adhere only to teachings that confirm, confess, and adore Christ as the Son of God. Right? That verse 8 is like a, a verse of adoration. It's not just correct teaching that he's getting at. It's teaching for adoration, for worship. In this teaching, while adhering to truth, it produces fruit. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Faithful teaching about Christ will produce grace. A church needs both. Churches can often traffic in the language of grace. They can use language of gospel centrality. They can use language uh, of, of God's forgiveness. But without actually being a grace-filled culture. Hearts will not be strengthened in performance of religious duty. That's what he refers to when he's referring to when he's talking about food. Right, Our hearts are not going to be strengthened when we perform all of our religious duties, even Christian ones, with perfection if grace isn't present we have an altar he says from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat we can sing all the things we want pray all we want do all the right things be scrupulous in our religious activity but without grace none of those things can do anything So for these Jewish Christians, going to the altar, to the priest of the altar, and eating that food is going to be one of the most religious things that you can do in the altar, saying it doesn't do anything for you. They won't benefit you. It is only grace that abounds through adoration of Jesus Christ. Gracious, grace. Filled grace-producing teaching. Acceptable worship. Third, acceptable worship is characterized by faithful witness. And this, this, these next few verses, right, kind of constitute the longest train of thought in this passage. And he continues his, his thought about food from the altar. But, but instead of eating food from the altar, he, he's actually talking about food that's forbidden, right? He says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. I remember um, uh, over 10 years ago now, I, we, me and um, a guy I went on a mission trip with, uh, we stayed with this African family in, in Botswana, Africa, and we went to a wedding, and and, and you know, wedding... Uh, weddings there, at least, the, everybody goes home with a gift. And so uh, the gift that, that, we, that you get is they, they butcher a cow, and they give you different parts of the animal. And, man, we were lucky. We went home with the head of the cow. Wrapped, I get, wrapped it up plastic bag. I don't know. I guess we put it in the trunk of the car. I don't know how we got it home. But we got the head, and we went home, and, and we, we, we pulled it apart. We really watched them pull it apart. Um, and I think for breakfast, we probably had the tongue. But other cultures, right, they're really good about not wasting any part of the animal, right? It, you, you will eat every part of the animal that you can. And so typically for these priests, they would sacrifice and they would get to eat the meat, right? It was an occasion for feast, right? N- not all sacrifice was somber, right? Every part was going to be used for something. But, but this sacrifice, right, that's taken outside the camp is not the sacrifice you eat, Every bit of it is dedicated to judgment. It's actually a a bleak reminder of the loss that sin brings. It it has to be burned outside the camp. And he, he points us to the fulfillment of all of this, right? Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Every bit, every part of Jesus was offered up. Nothing about his sacrifice was wasted or deficient. The loss that sin would normally and should bring to us was brought upon Jesus instead. And notice the the juxtaposition that he just did, right? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus suffered outside the gate. Jesus, the unchanging. Jesus, the bloody sacrifice. Eternal God, humbled to death for sinners. Perfect in every way. Therefore, verse 13... Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. If God took such suffering upon himself, such suffering is not beneath his people. And in this case, right? Reproach, right? What characterizes our God will characterize His people, and His people will be characterized by reproach. You know, Jesus, he he sanctified humility. Jesus sanctified insults. J. J, J. C. Ryle, uh, he said, humility is the highest grace that can adorn the Christian character. Listen to what he said. He said, a man has just so much Christianity as he has humility. And that includes willing to undergo suffering and reproach. And we can do this, verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Bear reproach, no lasting city. The Christian is declared homeless. We, We can seek the blessing of where we are, but listen, our expectations of what we can achieve are tempered by this verse. We have no lasting city. And sometimes, sometimes God in His faithfulness is going to remind us, here you have no home. It will make us feel it. I say that because I feel like we should be feeling it. Right now. Through Him then, verse 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Bear reproach. You have no lasting city. Offer up praise to God. And he says all this without skipping a beat. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, Christian witness is both about declaring who God is in Christ and adorning that with good deeds. Man, early Christianity was subversive, not only because of the message that they taught, which was radical, but also because of their posture toward people and wrongs done in society. I just read uh, about this one Christian woman born to royalty, but she was known for giving her jewelry away to the poor, mopping up of mucus and saliva from the faces of the sick, and making shrouds for the poor out of her finest linen veils. Bearing reproach, declaring his praises, doing good, faithful witness. Faithful witness. Fourth, acceptable worship is characterized by humble service. And, and so here in verse 17, he returns to their leaders again to the topic of their leaders, and this this time it's it's the leaders currently over them. It says, "Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account." And we hear those verses right, and, and we get a little bit squirmy sometimes, <laughs> especially um, when you have a, a pastor teaching about how you're supposed to submit to your pastors that. Nice and comfortable, isn't it? But you know scripture calls us to submit to uh, our parents uh, to governing authorities to to different authorities over our lives, and, and in particular, the church is called to submit to the the its elders. First um, Peter he, 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 he says, "Be subject to the elders, but he addresses that to, to you who are younger he, one reason you know, why Peter has to address those who are younger to submit to the elders is because, well, guess what? Those who are younger typically have the hardest time actually submitting. But, but listen, that, and this is the same really with uh, obeying parents and everything. Well, it, the, the submitting is not done to abuse, right? It's not done to domineering elders, but to watchful elders, Right, what does he say? For they are doing what? They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Listen, faithful elders to whom you submit care both for the condition of their flock and they watch over their own lives. They must give an account. The shepherding that's done is not done haphazardly or for self-glory. Right, Boulevard, this church is not the elders' church it's not Doug's church. It doesn't belong to those who have been here longest or have given the most amount of money. This church belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the chief shepherd, he's the lead pastor. He calls the shots, and, and we elders have to give an account to him. It makes for humility. whether it's here at Boulevard, right, or, or anywhere. Do your elders shepherd as those who must give an account? And listen, the question that you're asking is not, do they make mistakes? If I have not, or if we have not disappointed you yet, we will. Spoiler alert! But is the shepherding marked by the humility that comes from serving under Christ as shepherd? The author says... You can submit to guys like that. In fact, the very need to have this command to obey and submit to leaders and elders is, is gonna be at times where it might be hard to sometimes. And that's actually kind of the, the flip side of this, right? There's, there's a humility that's necessary on the part of the elders, but also on the part of, of the church, too, right? Uh, let them do this with joy. And not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Mal and I uh, have recently started to watch a show called Top Chef. It's wonderful. Um, makes you really like, want to like cook a lot better. Uh, and you have these world-class chefs, right? And they put together these dishes for these judges. And man, these judges can be relentless. It doesn't matter if, like the previous episode... The, the chef knocks it out of the park. If they mess up once, man, these judges are going to rip them apart. They'll nitpick the tiniest detail. And so, a healthy church is not just one that has healthy pastors, but healthy members, members who don't nitpick. All right? The, the focus, all right? Obviously, we don't nitpick one another, okay? But, but the, the, the focus here is on, on, on pastors, on, on those who are most visible, don't nitpick, who aren't suspicious of or, 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 or readily accuse their pastors, who trust their pastors. And man, we live in an age of distrust, don't we? Pastors should not be dependent on their churches for joy, but churches certainly hold a great weight in that joy. If you are all wondering, personally, I consider this body to be very encouraging and uplifting, healthy for my own joy, but we'll wait for May, right? And all of this is part of our acceptable worship to God. Pastors serving churches with humility, churches submitting to their pastors with joy, humble service, acceptable worship. Finally, acceptable worship is characterized by watchful prayer. The author's final exhortation there in verse 18, he says, pray for us. Pray for us. He, he says a couple of things about prayer, which we'll, we'll get to, but I don't, I don't want us to skip over this. Prayer is such a central aspect to the Christian life. And, and you, you all have likely heard the many reasons that we pray. We pray because we're in a battle, right? John Piper calls it our walkie-talkie. Uh, we're dependent on God. And all of those things are true. I I like what Jared Wilson calls it. He calls it the divine dialogue. Right? We go to to hear from God and His Word. And we go to God and we pour out our hearts to Him. And and part of prayer, listen, part of prayer is just for us. God likes when we talk to Him. God is fond of His people. And, 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 you know, you can get in like all the philosophical stuff. Well, doesn't he know everything? Doesn't he know what I'm going to say? <laughs> He's your father. And he likes to hear from you. In fact, God shapes us through his word, and he also shapes us through our prayers. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed patterns in your life where you pray for something, and the longer perhaps you pray for something, God tends to shape those prayers into more conformity of his will. And, you know, we, we often will pray for ourselves. Lord knows we have needs. We pray for our families, um, our loved ones. We, we might even pray for the nation. But we can never forget to pray for other Christians, especially those with whom we are in fellowship. That's part of this. He's praying for us. We're in fellowship together. Have you ever prayed for a Christian with whom you are personally offended? It changes your heart's posture. But the author here, he says, pray for us. And he, he adds two dimensions. Pray for us. And he talks about the conscious, conscious, con, conscience, conscience, not conscious, conscience, and conduct. Conscience and conduct. Pray for us, he says, for we are sure that we have a clear Conscience. He's, he's mentioned conscience several times in his letter already. Uh, specifically, it's that Christ's sacrifice gives us a clear conscience before God. It's clear whether you feel it to be or not. There's a justified element to it. You are justified and you can't change your status. Praise the Lord. But but here, it's almost like there's a sanctification element to this, Right? Because our consciences are cleared by Christ, we can't simply assume that we always have the best motives or desires. Christian, turn your prayers inward. The, the psalmist prays in Psalm one nineteen twenty nine, 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me through your law. Like we have to pray against being self-deceived. Jesus said, Look at the plank in your own eye before you begin diagnosing sin or error in someone else. Look at yourself. So, a clear conscience, right? And, and honorable conduct. He says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear con- conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And I, I actually sat for a little while thinking about what 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 areas of life right do we fail to act honorably in and i mean you you can list so many areas right so many areas where we might give ourselves a pass otherwise well this you know you could might might say that this is a uh, i don't know pet peeve hobby horse not a hobby horse because i don't like it but one area that i see christians giving themselves permission to act dishonorably in, it's through the internet and social media, truly. We act in ways online that we would never act in person at all. We're so much more confident and bold, aren't we? Spreading slander just with a click of a button. Outrage is the point, right? Act honorably in all things. And finally, he he urges them to pray so that he may be restored to them, right? Do it more earnestly in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Do your prayers reflect a desire for deeper fellowship with one another? Christ connected you to a body. As much as you might be a hand, and like being around other hands, He's connected you to feet too. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of a calling to which you have been called. And and what's the primary way to walk according to this calling? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is not automatic, right? Fellowship and unity among the body takes conscious effort and watchful prayer. And this is, this is acceptable worship. God tells us what is acceptable worship. Not ritual, not extravagant offerings. Listen listen to what acceptable worship is. Brotherly love. Purity. Grace and truth. Humility. Bearing reproach, good deeds. Serving one another, praying for one another. These are not constraining at all. These cause our hearts to work properly. right? These things make us the most free. And the best news of all is that all of this centers on the God-man. The fullness of God in one man to save many sinners. God is not... Like waiting for us to get our act together, right? I've given you the list of acceptable worship. Now I'm just waiting on you to do your part, right? We don't make ourselves acceptable. He has already done everything on our behalf. And so, Christian, you cannot possibly add to what Christ has already done for you. You are acceptable. Already perfect in Christ. Already. And so if you live there in that reality, your life will brim with worship that is pleasing to Him. Live there in the life of the God-man. In all of these things, all these things will follow. Let's pray. Father God, this whole letter to the Hebrews is all about how Jesus is greater and better and how what he has accomplished for us is greater and better and and not just by a few degrees, but infinitely better. How can we possibly recount to you all that you have done for us? And yet, so much of it can be summed up in the fact that you have given yourself to us in all of your fullness. You have not held even a little bit back. You gave your very best in your son. You gave heaven's best. There's there's not a, a secret arsenal that you have yet to release. You've released everything For us, wayward, foolish, loveless sinners. And you save us to yourself that we would offer to you acceptable, freeing, joyful, glad, gracious worship. mold us into Your image and make us more like Christ that our worship would be free and unconstrained because of all that You are for us in Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Stand.